Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Giulio Passanetti. He's a professor of neurology at the Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai in New York. And we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease and uh, his work in it. So, Giulio, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work. Is it clinical? Is it just research? Is it a mixture? Let me just uh, give you a brief uh, introduction of who I am and, uh, and um, the historical perspective of uh, where I'm coming from. And the reason why I get into this kind of research and then uh, why I think that okay. uh, indeed, answering to your question, you know, we are going to move on more into the translational study and potential some kind of clinical application based on uh, several kind of studies that, that we have been doing always in collaboration as well as many other different major research center that based on preclinical work. So for the my historical perspective has been always to study the mechanism uh, of uh, molecular aging. I got my PhD part in Milan uh, and as well as a University of Southern California. My mentor was Cali Finch. He is Cali Finch. I still as a good friend, still uh, actually very active uh, at the USC. And I, we consider him as actually the father of neurobiology of aging. So Understanding the mechanism of uh, aging in some way as uh, the major risk factor of uh, almost a neurodegenerative disorder that we call age-related neurodegenerative disorder has been a fundamental part of also understanding the mechanism associated to the onset of Alzheimer's disease. 
So in the last 30 years, most, most of my work has been uh, dedicated primarily to try to understand uh, the mechanism, mechanism that you can study definitely in an experimental model. But the most important thing is actually to try to get the best of this mechanism, try to translate them into the human and try to understand that through this kind of translational application with different kind of mechanism, there are also mechanisms associated with funding from NIH and as well as philanthropy to try to target and identify what is actually in the giant, this jargon is called the target engagement of a specific drugs after you understand the mechanism and try from there to develop future kind of investigation for drugs and then eventually to go back again to the mechanism again in the mouse uh, or actually in the mouse or even other experimental model to continue to go in a, ref in a refinement in some way of the work that you do. So basically, it's always uh, answering to your question is actually you need all of it to start from somewhere and get some kind of idea and the, the experimental model of uh, science and the technological innovation that we had in the last few years uh, gave us a greater potential, uh, really, uh, opportunity to innovate us uh, and to increase the innovation of our understanding and get into the human and then into human for clinical efficacy and then go back again to the mouse or experimental model and better understanding further mechanism because most of the time the clinical study extrapolated from experimental work in the laboratory do not work. All right, so what, what are you researching in particular? Are you studying amyloid plaque formation or tau tangles or what are you studying? Well, this has actually has been one of the major, uh, I would say, breakthrough about the understanding the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease. The neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease has been always a debate a long time ago. Basically, it's a cause or maybe it's just as an effect. Uh, is this something that uh, we should target or actually we should actually maybe even to maximize, actually better understand in terms of his own relationship with the onset and progression of Alzheimer's disease? Well, there are very good example of a neuropathological feature of Alzheimer's disease in very well cognitive normal individual, as well as also there is a lot of evidence basically of uh, something the opposite where you have a neuropathologically, actually you have a cognitive deficient or cognitive deteriorated subject with basically with normal brain, or at least uh, very close to what they could be conditioned will actually be associated to, to a normal neurological control case. Now, the point is, this this actually just brought up this uh, just as an example for an extreme, but the bottom line, and that is the reason of most likely of uh, why we initiated this research, and then uh, me and uh, my collaborator and uh, my mentor about, uh, I think, 1984, based on funding from NIH, the first five NIH research centers, they were focused primarily on understanding exactly what the question that you already asked. Now, the question is that uh, almost, uh, well, I mean, uh, 25, 35, 36 years later, question is not being answered yet. We don't know if indeed uh, we are looking for something that is maybe a causative effect. We don't know if this is an age-related kind of condition that requires several other different kind of conditions, which actually I will discuss later on, which we can, con well, actually we can define modifiable risk factor that may be the player and most likely the 
the mechanism in vivo that we should, or actually condition in vivo that we should better understand for uh, that may influence uh, in a binary way, the positive versus the negative effect of this neurobiology of uh, or neuropathological feature of Alzheimer's disease. So the bottom line is that uh, going back to your question is that uh, there is no anymore beta amyloid or tau. Yes, indeed, this is a remain one of the major features and indeed cannot define a neuropathological. You cannot define even Alzheimer's disease until uh, you actually do an autopsy and look for certain kind of criteria for beta amyloid in the brain. But most important things that uh, that became very important in uh, into the literature is being and also in into the field and also for the general population is the understanding that uh, many of the drugs actually um, I'm sure that you realize that uh, most likely we have been conducting probably a 200 300 clinical trial in the last uh, 300 uh, in the last 30 35 years for the treatment and uh, or what we can call disease modifying clinical trial that actually can change the course of the disease or even maybe clinical trial that can be defined as uh, that can change maybe just uh, the symptoms or actually symptomatic clinical trial so the bottom line is that regardless if it's disease modifying or symptomatic, unfortunately, the attrition rate for all these clinical trials that cost today approximately a billion dollars from the bench to the pharmacy, the attrition rate is about 0.4, means that 96% of these clinical trials actually failed. What, what is the latest assumptions on Alzheimer's? I've heard that some people say that it's, you know, it's a type 3 diabetes and insulin resistance of brain cells. Like, what is the latest thinking and then what's your specific focus? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, I mean, actually, um, one thing I, I think uh, I figured that uh, that is exactly what I was thinking about uh, to introduce you when I was uh, was telling you that uh, besides uh, this, what the discovery that we had done in the last thirty years about beta amyloid or a, or a neuropathological feature that has been always associated with Alzheimer's disease, and uh, let me just make a premises here that I remember the one of the last clinical trial that actually targeted beta amyloid. It was very successful to remove beta plaque or amyloid plaque from the brain. The big question is that uh, even without plaque, uh, even without neuropathology, the patients and the subject continue to become demented. So now you can ask, everybody can ask, all your listeners here can ask, uh, if it's true that we remove beta amyloid or actually actinine beta amyloid in the brain, what is actually... Uh, what is the meaning if indeed the clinical uh, clinical outcome is basically still negative. So that is actually the reason why, and I think uh, your question is very important, and indeed has been where in the last five years, uh, my research and my research, my center uh, actually 
that is a center for web promotion, actually center for research in molecular neural resilience, is basically try to understand that indeed we have a, what we can define a potential modifiable risk factor versus something that are a potentially non-modifiable risk factor. Among other, uh, going back to your question about diabetes, uh, about, uh, about uh, but not only diabetes, we're talking about uh, subacute chronic immune inflammatory uh, uh, state, uh, psychological trauma, for example, childhood obesity, depression, even loneliness. Uh, loneliness is actually has been considered one of the major risk factors, for example, in the incidence of a uh, of Alzheimer's disease in the Japanese population. Even if they are uh, uh, one-tenth of our population, they have an incidence that probably 10 times higher than our. So there are uh, uh, several factors, and one of those is diabetes that actually has been part of a major part of our research. But uh, that is a, the story is even a little bit more complicated. And uh, and uh, and uh, just to answer your question, yes, indeed, uh, diabetes, general metabolites, uh, general metabolism, body fat mass, metabolic syndrome in general, that is basically high triglyceride, high blood, breath, uh, high blood pressure, uh, or even uh, other cardiovascular risk factor. They've been always associated in some way as a risk factor for the onset of potential acceleration of the disease. Now, well, is there well, a quick, causality? My question here, I interviewed a lady, I forget her name, but she oversaw, I don't know, 150 different Alzheimer's clinical trials. They all failed. And I said to her, what about diet, you know, in a, in a study? And she said, oh, you, you can't control for diet. That, we don't think that's a factor. But I mean, it does seem well, like there that, are multiple metabolic factors that could be underlying this. Is anyone doing a study true. where they are trying to control for it? Well, I mean, actually, uh, it's true and not, uh, no, not true. Clara Morris, uh, that has been, uh, unfortunately, she passed away last year. She published an incredible amount of literature in a very high-impact journal. Now, we are talking about... Uh, Diabetes is an excess of this regulation of metabolic syndrome that actually contain many of the actually is, a, is the, the cardinal factor of metabolic syndrome is one of those actually diabetes. But indeed, there are some kind of evidence that uh, dietary lifestyle factor may play an important role in onset the potential progression of disease. Now, I forgot to tell you before that if indeed we have a potentially modifiable factor in the 35% of the cases, you need to have also to keep in mind that the potentially non-modifiable factors are more than 65. And let me tell you, it's enough that you have a basically a predisposition from the genetic point of view, like by APOE4 allele, you can actually can do almost anything that you want in terms of prevention of a modifiable risk factor, and you're not going to do anything. Now, that is always a balance between the two. We are basically balancing between modifiable, non-modifiable factor and the aging process. That is, again, is a one no major risk factor for the disease. Now, getting back to your idea about the diet. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I mean, uh, diet and exercise is not true. Well, actually, if uh, a very complex to really to conduct, but... Uh, Double-blind, placebo-control, a randomized study conducted by, by Marta Mores at Rush University, published on, uh, on Nature. And also she published a beautiful book on the, the, mind, the diet of the mind. And a typical example that indeed uh, there are modifiable risk factors. But always uh, remember that you never know what kind of population you are looking for. If you are going to have a predisposition 
with a potentially non-modifiable factor, you can do all the diet that you want. You can do all the exercise that you want. It's like to stop a train that actually ran it for 400 miles an hour on a track and you try to block it, it just went one toothpick. So this is actually how is the situation. Now you're telling me probably, well, is there something that really work? Uh, is there something that, that may be preventative that we can really do and, uh, and modify these kind of things? Well, I mean, it's actually, I would say that even before to answer that kind of question, I would like just to tell you that one of the reasons that many of these kind of clinical trial and the person that told you that actually feel more than by 70% of the 90% of the clinical trial, she was right. And probably is actually due to the fact that, uh, uh, and we've made a lot of progress, we learn a lot, first of all, to classify our own subjects. Now, if we don't know what is a subject that is a basically is already past the point of no return, and we are talking about the clinical dementia rating score. Now, uh, we have uh, what we can define clinical dementia CDR, uh, clinical dementia rating 0.5, that is a uh, mild, but actually is already demented, or uh, uh, moderate, uh, one and two, or even just uh, very uh, in, uh, into the uh, form of dementia, that is clinical dementia uh, four and five. Well, when are you going to use some of these subjects uh, for a clinical study? You are always are going to fail miserably. Now, what actually we learned in the last five, 10 years, in particular in the last five years, is that we discovered that uh, we don't have to really to start when you're going to become symptomatic to some of this kind of condition, uh, which can be easily be detected by, a, for example, a kind of neurobehavioral battery testing of, uh, of uh, a memory of memory clinic. Well, then uh, the fact that uh, any kind of Alzheimer's disease condition is preceded by a certain kind of condition that is called my cognitive impairment. This cognitive impairment that is characterized by a certain kind of condition, uh, which is basically defined that maybe there is a population that you might eventually target again for some kind of novel drug treatment. But we made the even more progress because before my progress, my cognitive impairment, we have a situation in which we have a subject that, is being, that we can define a prodromal. And actually, several studies actually now for clinical applications started from the laboratory, as I told you in my first sentence, basically are characterized by the fact that neuropathologically are characterized by quite a massive, massive, but no massive, but actually substantial neuropathological feature like amyloid and, and tau. However, a prodromal subject doesn't have any symptoms. So is this a, a kind of a, is this a, a very good uh, uh, subject population that we can choose even before mild cognitive impairment, which is a still cannot be defined, demented, but actually is already uh, in the path to really to get into the uh, mild dementia. Well, I mean, uh, some clinical trial, uh, they've been there, uh, they have shown uh, and actually can monitor this uh, subject just uh, by imaging, by imaging. Uh, and then you can just say that if they have a neuropathology or not, well, there are some uh, very encouraging evidence that this may be the case and do some kind of prevention. But actually, we have done even more in the last five years. We thought that maybe even before prodromal, we actually we could look in some of the population that is called preclinical. So basically, this kind of population of preclinical have a just initial 
kind of a, let's say, scent of an infirmary. Well, they have some kind of condition that maybe psycholo- neuropsychologically can define that maybe there is something that is associated to an aging process. They are not really sick. They are not, there is no, there is no any kind of cognitive deterioration, but this is actually are characterized by aging. And remember that aging is one of the highest, most important risk factor for the disease. You will ask oh, me well, what well, we're gonna well, do. Quick question though, why is aging a risk factor? What happens during aging? You know, has anyone been able to figure it out? What's happened? That is actually the question of a million dollar because uh, most likely, most likely, and uh, one thing that uh, I participated in something very interesting that people can even go back and try to look at the Lancet Commission report that there was a paper uh, was adapted by this Dr. Livingston. Actually, I participated into this kind of Lancet Commission kind of uh, analysis of the state of the art for the, the, the beginning was uh, defined as a treatment and care in Alzheimer's disease that eventually titled the change it became uh, like a prevention, intervention, and potential care. So uh, prevention and intervention and potential care define that uh, maybe there are a kind of cumulative factor from late life, but actually preceded in midlife or maybe even early life, like uh, what I just told you, childhood obesity, that inter- that they may be intermingled with some kind of mechanism of associated to some kind of form of a genetic or polymorphism that actually basically differential, uh, let's say different form of uh, specific genes that uh, if they are expressed, uh, and nobody knows why, in a certain kind of manner, meaning in other words, that is enough that the one nucleotide is maybe changed in a, in a specific gene. For example, gene that I will tell you about of inflammation. There is a gene, for example, TREM2 gene, that with a single polymorphism may predispose the subject during aging to become much more susceptible to the dementia, as well as also accelerate the onset of the disease. Now, uh, you are asking me what is actually that the aging per se is doing as a major risk factor. The problem is that is not really the only major risk factor. Aging is not a disease, which cannot actually define it. And uh, we have a, a wonderful uh, example of an aged person uh, capable with a highly uh, capacity, uh, mental, uh, uh, to perform. And uh, we have a centenarian that actually are teaching us how to really to live a more kind of a reasonable and uh, and and a playful uh, uh, life so the bottom line is that uh, we have done a lot of genetic aging we have done a lot of things but uh, there are some kind of uh, events that are not necessarily related to the aging per se but the, to the derangement of an aging process what it is is it possible that the aging may basically reach uh, or may influence in some way the subset of potential genes that actually are silent during our midlife, during our early life, and then during late life, these genes actually are turned on and then, for example, promote a condition that we know very well associated to the immune inflammatory responses? 
Well, this is exactly where right now we are working and uh, many different kind of groups are working in these days that are, for example, as a dietary or actually dietary as a lifestyle factor that all of the gut brain axis. Anything that actually is a part of a dietary support uh, may play an important role and a phenomenal impact on inflammatory response in circulation leading to, for example, characteristics of uh, this this modulation of uh, immune response in the periphery similar to an autoimmune response. And then, for example, this can be achieved in our animal model by stress. Now, is it, for example, stress or psychological stress is capable to promote this regulation of something that can start in the gut and then in the gut through some kind of a this regulation of microbiome that is basically the way of how these microbes may influence the immune responses and eventually to lead to changes in the brain because they can promote inflammation and immunity? Well, yes, that is actually what is happening right now. And if you look in the literature and in everybody, even a lay audience that would like to really to educate themselves, they can find thousands and thousands of these kind of different papers. Uh, is this the answer? We are just at the beginning, but nevertheless, we really understand that uh, how peripheral gut, or actually the gut and the brain axis, or even just uh, the possibility that uh, what we thought that maybe the brain was uh, a kind of uh, immune protected uh, organ, and uh, that it would be a neuroimmune modulatory kind of aspect of what happening in the brain and no impact of immune responses in the brain. And therefore that it was, uh, it was not even to be considered something that it could have been one of the cause of, uh, of degeneration, neuroinflammation, and then eventually potential degeneration and then potentially even Alzheimer's disease or even mild or even uh, a major depressive disorder. Well, there are all of that in these days. Unfortunately, we need to consider that are a risk factor, putting them all together, that I initiate from early life to midlife to late life, and then all of this into the fact that we might have some predisposition based on the fact that there are some gene or polymorphism, single nucleotide in our DNA, they make us more susceptible to an aging process, and maybe some other actually will age normally without absolutely any kind of uh, event and living a normal life. There are many, many factors, but which ones have you chosen that are the most promising to you that you are focusing on and trying to figure out? There is no question about that. And um, that is not even just because we initiated. We do believe, we do believe uh, that uh, right now, still, despite the fact that, as I said before, uh, neurobiology, sorry, the neurobiology of aging as well as the Alzheimer's disease research, is a very little kind of a, a, a skeptical about this idea about the neurobiology of us, neurobiology, the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease, beta amyloid, and tau. Still, they play an interactive mechanism with something that could be a neuroinflammatory, in, uh, infective disorder kind of condition. So, viral infection in the brain appears to be one very important factor in these days. And uh, as I said before, the neuroimmunomodulatory effect of from uh, the periphery to the center, to the brain, in terms of uh, 
in native immunity, for example. In native immunity was something that was uh, was not even considered 10 years, 15 years ago to be responsible for any kind of immune response in the brain. Today, we can do these studies in both in animal as well as in human. Now, getting to, uh, to your question, the strong interaction and then the potential uh, susceptibility based on the fact of this uh, single point mutation or maybe polymorphism of gene associated to, uh, to inflammation and their interaction with uh, some kind of emerging phase of the, of the neuropathology is going to be what, in, in my opinion, and not only just my opinion, and the modulation through uh, manipulation of a uh, of, uh, genetic, um, uh, genetic approach, innovative genetic approach, like using the CRISPR-Cas9 model in animal models, still far away to really to as a method to, to cure genetically human beings, but actually talking about only for experimental reason, will actually provide us a possibility to really to understand a causative effect or a causative factor relationship between, indeed, the reason actually between neuropathology and neuroinflammation. So neuroinflammation is going to become, but not the neuroinflammation actually we, we actually witnessed in uh, 20 years ago when we initiated with classical neuroinflammatory drugs and we failed miserably to prove that there was anything that was associated with, uh, for example, with NSAIDs, treatment and attenuation of disease. We are talking about immune inflammatory responses that can play in a very important role in mechanism of survival of cells that can actually can play an important role in immune responses that can play how the immune system, the peripheral immune system may interact uh, with the brain. For example, the ratios of a certain kind of uh, uh, T cells that actually can uh, be beneficial, actually can, uh, they call T regulatory cells in the periphery and TH17 cells in the periphery. Sorry for being so specific, but this is actually the ratio of these two kinds of uh, lymphocytes play an important role of how our brain can respond to immune, uh, to immune and inflammatory responses. If you think about that, these things can happen in Alzheimer's disease, but actually are the target for multiple sclerosis and give you some kind of idea that as much as actually we move on into innovative kind of technological way of understanding, for example, with a phenomenal technique that is called a single cell RNA sequencing, and then being able to approach with this, uh, with this kind of technique, the Alzheimer's disease brain, and to try to identify which one are the cells and which are is the brain region that can differentiate an innate immune response or an in, in inflammatory immune response in the brain of Alzheimer's disease, which is maybe different from some other immune inflammatory responses like a multiple sclerosis, and why these actually are different. And going back, to the bouncing board in the lab and try to work more with a basic research using an experimental model and the extremely high sophisticated technique that will allow us to really to understand, for example, that uh, many of these kind of uh, many of these kind of uh, condition may not even related to the genetics as we normally understand. Julie, I have a quick question here. Has has sure. anyone looked post mortem? 
at brains of people that have that have plaques and tangles and all that, but no dementia, and people that have dementia, and, you know, compared the brains. Has anyone done a study where they've looked at, uh, let's say, 50 of each? Yes. And what, what is absolutely yes, absolutely yes. And this is one of the major conundrums. There are studies actually done by the Russian University. Actually, we had done at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the brain bank directed by all of it as a part of this idea of trying to understand who is actually cognitive normal versus pathology. And actually, we have a brain bank that is actually directed by Dr. Brahma Rotunian, with whom I actually collaborated for 25 years. Well, I mean, actually, there is even more what what you just said and what you asked. Not only you can find perfect brain in the mental subject, as well as also vice versa, but actually you can see that sometimes brains of subjects that they live longer are characterized by neuropathological features that actually you would think that actually would kill you 20 years before. Now, there is also a very interesting study that uh, many people in the field already know about. It's called the NUN study. Actually, they found that, that uh, and this is actually everything initiated from there, the NUN study at the Rush University was actually to find nuns that actually donated their brain. And they found exactly what you just said. Well, perfect brain, neurological control brain in demented subjects. And the dementia subjects are basically with uh, the opposite of what you would like to expect. So what does it mean? Well, it's actually the same thing when I was telling you before that in some way uh, there is such a kind of a heterogeneity into a kind of a population or actually heterogeneity of factors that can uh, maybe cross-interact each other in, from early life, from mid-life or late life. And all of them actually lead to some kind of a completely different kind of end results. Okay, so in the nun study, they looked at the hist- you know the histology of the tissue. Like what you know, I've I've heard that people without dementia will still show plaques. Maybe they won't show tangles. But what was observed from that study? What physically was observed? You know, were there different size plaques in the two groups? Were there different morphology of the plaques? Like what was different? Well, actually, getting into the detail, this actually is a study that's about 20 years ago, 20 years old. Still, I cannot just tell you, but uh, I should actually go back and read it again. But one thing that is uh, extraordinary, in my personal opinion, is that is in some way, again, what is actually is the definition of dementia? That is the problem. Is the dementia that is neuropsychologically uh, detailed, actually defined by a neuro battery or neuropsychological term and uh, standardized in a normal in a population and in a population that has been in some way randomized, double blinded, and then you're going to figure it out at the autopsy that is basically. The subject that actually were cognitive, the most of the cognitive deteriorated uh, subjects were actually those ones that actually had uh, the list of the neuropathology or actually definition of a normal aging. Well, this answered all the questions that is a part of the beginning of this kind of discussion. Now, uh, there is a, uh, we, uh, we at Mount Sinai, in collaboration with Claudia Cowers at University of California, Irvine, 
but several years ago, we initiated certain kind of studies and tried to identify, uh, for example, the characteristics again for uh, for uh, uh, for define actually to define a criteria for inclusion of subjects in our own clinical study. And uh, with Claudia and actually with Ari Arotunian and then several other investigators at Sinai and also University of Kansas at that time, uh, what we discover is that, as I, what I just told you before, that mechanism associated to oxidative stress, pro-inflammatory cascade, mechanism associated to degeneration and, uh, and immune responses were actually found in the subject that uh, actually died at the very oldest age. Now we actually look at young old, or old, uh, young old. Uh, I even, I even now don't remember exactly the the, uh, the definition. But actually, we have a subject between fifty and sixty-five. Then uh, from sixty-five to eighty-five, from eighty-five to hundred, hundred twenty. So basically, we found that the people that actually survived longer were actually subjects that they had most of the neuropathology and most of the degenerative kind of condition. Now, this is like together with this idea of the NAM study, bring, bring, bring up and then ring a bell about, again, what is that during the process of aging or maybe genopolymorphism or maybe even something else that uh, many people have been investigating that is not associated to genetics, but maybe to epigenetics. Basically, an epigenetic modification is not a structural alteration of DNA, but basically chemical modification of a DNA that actually need to have, uh, uh, that actually can influence how the uh, relaxation, actually relaxation of the DNA to allow transcription of a specific gene. Now we know very well that actually quality of life, stress, or actually what we just were talking before about the modifiable risk factor for neurodegenerative disorder, like depression, like actually sleep deprivation, may play epigenetically without any kind of modification of the DNA structurally, may influence chemically how the genome eventually will eventually work. Is that sufficient? Well, I mean, depending upon if that is actually overlap with something that may be even bad in terms of genomics. So that is actually, is, this is not a, uh, all the things that I raised here is just to give you just a, in some way the level of complexity, but I am sure, I'm uh, actually very uh, confident that how we move forward in, for example, in terms of precise medicine, and basically to try to subdivide a set of population with certain kind of polymorphism, or actually determination of a certain kind of epigenetic characteristics, or maybe to test the effect of a certain drug even before you are gonna develop the disease. And I will tell you one very interesting study that actually is currently going on at the Harvard University. And uh, Rudy Tanzi is doing a terrific kind of work. Will actually provide some evidence uh, or support what I just told you a couple of minutes ago. Everything I, and associated, everything I told you, associated to the fact that the innovative technology that allow us to really to define even subset of cells for precise medicine that we can target in the brain with specific drugs 
and uh, avoiding actually what we call really the target engagement for select pathological cells, and maybe to try to define in this way that uh, avoiding cells that actually brain cells, neuron, or even actually inflammatory cells that may be beneficial and actually target some other just because with this new technique, we are able to, ta- to identify them based on, uh, on genomics, based on transcriptomics, will actually open a great opportunity for future therapeutic intervention. This is completely new. We're talking about something that is uh, just reaching now, I would say reaching now just the major high impact journal to try to identify the, the uh, novel, uh, novel therapeutics. Getting back to Rudy Tenzi, he actually initiated a very interesting study. This is not even new. It's something that uh, I'm sure that you probably remember. You have been already interviewed other people talking about the Colombian population, Colombian population, which actually, unfortunately, they were they are uh, characterized by a genetic kind of a predisposition by a specific gene, uh, dominant gene which actually imply that uh, based on Mendelian transmission, you actually can uh, identify and quantify the number of subjects that actually will develop the disease. Now, so 100%, you, you're going to know who is going to develop the disease. And this subject, in one way or the other, that you cannot define them sporadic, you can define them actually as a genetic uh, predisposed individual one thing that actually Rudy and uh, as well as also some of these uh, studies that uh, in some part that they failed, but also they gave some other kind of very good opportunity to really to move forward, uh, will give us the opportunity to start treatment 10, 15 years before they become symptomatic because we already what, know. What, yeah, what would the treatment, if you started 10, 15, 20 years beforehand, what would the treatment look like that you think would have a beneficial effect? Well, but actually, the studies are in progress. Treatments that actually they are testing is basically the classical uh, novel drug discovery that everybody wants to do. And uh, there are a clinical trials. Actually, we have a certain kind of uh, uh, antibody treatment, for example, that are actually being tested. There are actually very interesting kind of things to try to understand maybe a preventative trial where with this population to try to define that maybe drug interaction and preventative dietary lifestyles or also lifestyles might eventually help this population. Now, is ethically correct? Well, I mean, actually, you don't have anything else to do than other to, to help this population. So they are not definitely our guinea pig. They're absolutely not. This is only the way to really to help this population. You ask me what kind of drugs. There are some uh, proprietary drugs actually they are testing. Many people criticize the idea that using a population that is actually genetically modified, which nevertheless in some way for a mutation in a gene that is called like presenile, may eventually have, uh, may initiate in the uh, in the fourth or fifth decades of life symptomatology of Alzheimer's disease, and maybe having just the possibility to understand that we can delay some of this cognitive decline, or even understanding some of the mechanism, even if we know that these are not sporadic cases, I think that uh, it will be a sacrifice of uh, these wonderful people that were unfortunate to really to uh, they were born with this kind of a, an inherent kind of a, a gene. And uh, 
offering their uh, suffering, life and sufferings for the, for the best of the humanity. And, uh, and this study is actually moving on. Well, uh, you can tell me why we don't start with the aging population, with the aging population that I told you before are a very high risk for the disease. Well, the answer is very simple. Aging is a high risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, but it's gonna take about 20, 30 years. How are you gonna figure it out and how you can afford to do study, maybe starting at the age of 60 and waiting until 90? What is the incidence that eventually will uh, between 60 and, uh, and 90? Well, they tell you that actually there is an increase of about 25 and 30%. But these are studies that are completely impossible to really to uh, from the financial point of view. So better classification of the population for targeting, better understanding of the mechanism that we can go back on the bouncing board into the lab, going into some kind of classification of this uh, population genetically associated with uh, the onset of progression of the disease, allowing for experimental drugs, in particular the immune therapies, and try to see if we can uh, maybe understand a little bit more because we can control all the parameters because we are 100% that this subject will eventually develop the disease. I think it's going to be the future. Definitely will uh, give us the opportunity to better understand the target engagement of these drugs. We tell, uh, we tell uh, possibly in post-mortem brain to understand what is the beneficial effect maybe at different stages of the disease, because uh, most likely there will be some kind of uh, a subject that actually will die earlier in the in an accelerated kind of phase of the disease, and, um, and then uh, continue to work in the laboratory, screening million and million and million and million of compounds, going back through dry discovery program, try to understand mechanism better understanding of uh, the interrelationship between environment factor, protection, that are several grants are supported even by NIH and, uh, and then Alzheimer's Association to understand that we can do prevention by quality of life. One more question here. There are tens of millions of electronic health records available in the U.S. What about mining those and looking for correlations to see what uh, what led to Alzheimer's and whatnot, perhaps that might be a good starting point to focus the research from here. Well, you actually touch on something that is extremely interesting and beautiful, but uh, we have done uh, much better than that. You probably heard that the ADNI study that actually is uh, keep going on into and uh, recruiting thousands and thousands of subjects. The ADNI study actually is looking in this population that actually range from a normal cognitive, prodromal, a mild cognitive impairment, even just some kind of a very early phase of, uh, of dementia. The interesting part from this, uh, this study, which actually, unfortunately, were not, well, let's say, did not, they, they are not, they actually they generated and provide, not generated, actually, they accumulate an incredible amount of uh, fundamental question, uh, uh, and uh, we can call them biomarker, are not present into this, uh, into this, uh, into this uh, repository, bio, bio repository that you are talking about. For example, into the ADNI, you can even ask uh, access to uh, MRI longitudinally. You can actually look for biomarker in blood 
and not talking only just with amyloid. You can actually ask the cerebral spinal fluid. You can ask for uh, already uh, RNA sequencing or actually genome-wide investigation. They tell you if there is predisposition in terms of uh, of uh, genes. They tell you the lifestyle factor. They tell you gender effect. They are monitor for diabetes. They are monitor for depression. They are monitor for all these kind of things. And all this kind of information are available to any investigator on the planet Earth. And, uh, and this is most likely, unfortunately, a step that we have to take back and try to go again. I use for the third time the bouncing board in the lab and then to try to put all these kind of points and try to connect the better lines and then eventually to try to figure it out that maybe we are in the right direction. But uh, where we start, I think is in right. some way... Aging is definitely, again, one of the most uh, mysterious kind of uh, mechanism that uh, lead at, uh, at some point in, in uh, of a period of our life, uh, of our life history, in a kind of position that uh, make us a successful ager versus unsuccessful ager. It's because right, right, right. Uh, is uh, is because we have uh, we some uh, learn how to live better than others. I don't think so. I think it actually science is moving in, in with this new technologically advanced with uh, with high very impact kind of a science. I'm a reviewer into NIH. I review grants from uh, uh, from a philanthropist and the Alzheimer's Association. And I can tell you that I see every year an encouraging level of enthusiasm, passion, dedication. And I'm sure that uh, despite all this kind of uh, multiple factors that we just discussed in the last half hour, will be in some way put them, to, uh, will be put it together and will allow us to really to come up with, uh, with something that most likely is at the beginning, is the beginning of uh, of all this cascade of events and eventually right, to Ju- initiate uh, seriously prevention and therapy. All right, Julio, we're we're at the end of time. What's the best way to find out more about your work? Where can people go? We have uh, actually, I think we have. Uh, I ask uh, my responsible for my platform, and uh, his name is Jay. Is um, we have uh, we have a two website for the Center for Molecular Integrity and Neural Resilience. Uh, at the Icon School of Medicine. Jade, actually, that is listening right now, will be able to provide uh, all the information. And um, definitely uh, there, there are uh, initial information that they eventually will lead into more and more kind of uh, investigation that we are trying to move on. The new grants that actually NIH supporting us for understanding the role of stress, psychological stress, and uh, and onset of dementia and everything will be there and uh, we will provide this uh, this information and Jay will definitely do is listening us okay. as we speak. Very good, very good, Julio. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.